Hello and welcome to Getting a Grip, your weekly tennis podcast. We serve up news and opinion on the world of tennis, hopefully without fault. So let us string you along with content from the beloved tennis tour all the way to grassroots tennis. It was at the US Open he got to the quarterfinals and then obviously at the Australian Open he had this mega five-set match against Berrettini and that was when I thought, ooh, this guy's got all the ingredients it takes to go to the top. He's, he's now recorded the third best starts to a season I believe out of all of the um all of the previous seasons of any player so any only the only two seasons and two people that have beaten that so still are well Novak Djokovic and it kind of brings in the question of player welfare and the kind of fairness of the the tournament in general because some players are getting longer to recover than others you know obviously mental health itself is something that everyone experiences differently everyone has very different perceptions with everyone wrangles with their own demons in their own ways and you know and how obvious that is to the outside world is very different as usual we're here to talk about the latest tennis news from the last week or so in the tennis world um plenty to talk about this week we've got all the latest action from indian wells and the Grand Slams have recently introduced a new rule where the fifth set is going to be the same tiebreak for each of the Grand Slams. And also we've got Osaka in tears after being heckled by crowds at Indian Wells. And we'll give our thoughts on all of these different topics as we go through. But of course, the main place to start is Indian Wells, which is currently going on now as this podcast is being recorded. We are in the build-up to the Alcaraz versus Nadal match, the all the all Spanish matchup, um, sort of Nadal Academy versus Juan Carlos Ferrero Academy, I think, and old versus young, Alcaraz being almost half the age of Rafa Nadal, which is kind of crazy to think, and makes me feel a little bit old, given that both of us have been following Nadal since his younger years, remembering as a tearaway 19-year-old on the tour, winning his first French Open, so. That's where we're going to start. What do we What do we think to this matchup? Have you been following Alcaraz much? I know I've only recently started paying attention to this guy. Who I think it was at the U.S. Open he got to the quarterfinals, and then obviously at the Australian Open he had this mega five-set match against Berrettini, and that was when I thought, "Ooh, this guy's got all the ingredients it takes to go to the top." His game's already so well-rounded for a guy who's only eighteen. He's got the endurance, the defensive game, the volleying I saw in this last match against Norrie where he was, his reactions at the net were incredible. Um, some lovely feel as well with little drop shots. Do we feel that he's got much of a chance against Nadal given Nadal's obviously incredible start to the year, which we obviously have to say every podcast now. Uh, I think it's 18 out of 18 or 19 out of 19. So how, yeah, how do we see this one matching up and what's Alcaraz's chances? Yeah, it's an interesting topic to discuss. I mean, first on the Nadal thing as well. Um, like he's he's now recorded the third best 
starts to a season, I believe, out of all of the um, all of the previous seasons of any player. So, any only the only two seasons and two people that have beaten that so still are well Novak Djokovic. So there was one where Djokovic won twenty something matches, and there's one where Djokovic won something like 40, 41, 42 matches in a row to start his season off. That was one of the years where obviously he he was unstoppable. That must have been like um, twenty eleven. Must have been one of them. I remember that year was unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, in this later stage of his career and the fact that he was not long ago, about six months ago, joking with Federer about the fact that they're both hobbling around. Like, um, yeah, it's an incredible start. I think if anyone's going to beat him now, I think it probably is Alcaraz at this stage because, well... I know we talked, this is this is my head going here, so like a lot of people might disagree with this, but in my head, Carlos Alcaraz is like mini Nadal in that respect. So, but the problem is he might he might end up being better because, you know, not even um, on the clay, we're, we're, we're sort of untested on the clay for Carlos Alcaraz at the moment in terms of, you know, how unstoppable he might be. But we do know that he's got a good hard court game. Um, very interesting to see what he's like on the grass as well. But the, the, all those points aside, I think, yeah, you know, as you were saying, he's he's a very strong character. Uh, I heard one commentator say um, the most impressive thing about him is, is just his emotional regulation for someone so young. He seems he's just cold and calculated, but without a sign of negative emotion. It's all positive. It's all positive from him. And he's, he just celebrates everything. But, you know, not too much. So, it, yeah, I think it's just incredible the way that he um, displays himself. I think a lot of young players should be looking at him right now. If, you know, if there's an example of how to conduct yourself on a tour, we've, we've been talking about this recently as well. Um, I think Alcaraz is certainly a person to look at at the moment. You never know where these things can go. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I That kind of makes me think of um, the little interview I saw with Federer one time where he described how he keeps his um yeah like emotions regulated in matches and because obviously you said in the last podcast that he had issues when he was a lot younger um coming onto the tour with you know his his temperament and things as like most young players tend to have yeah exactly he i think he summed it up perfectly when he said it was uh fire in the belly but ice in the veins that's kind of the approach you want to have in these these heated matches and that it seems like that's what alcaraz has got already at such a young age it's yeah it's incredible the the focus he he manages to display and yeah it's, it's like this steely determination it's it's almost like um yeah like a psychopathic in a way <laughs> when you look into his eyes it's like oh, I'm just, i feel a bit uncomfortable with um but yeah his i think that is one of the most impressive things is obviously he's it seems like he's got an all-court game already but his mentality um is yeah something that is similar to Nadal and then I think Nadal even said in a in a press conference that he reminds him of his younger self which you know that, yeah. that's that's kind of compliment you want isn't it um I think because obviously tennis is like many sports is such a mental game obviously tennis mm. can be very technical as well but a lot of these guys are like at such a similar technical level that getting yourself in the right frame of mind and being able to think clearly in key points especially is often the difference and that like I think that's what you've seen with Nadal this year is he's just showing his experience more than ever in these key points like because in a lot of his matches there have been points where the other player could have taken it away from him I'm thinking um against uh Shapovalov he was I think he was up a break um 
that I don't know which if that was the fourth set, um, but he that would have given him a massive chance of winning the match. And obviously Medvedev, he was two sets to love up, and I think he was a breakup or he had a break point, and Nadal just made the correct decisions in those key points and managed to come back into the, into the match. Um, yeah, it's just that is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing at that level, is to be able to make the correct decisions. Yeah. Well, it's not only that, it's your pre-match plans as well. You've got to have an idea of where you want to hit someone, how you're going to take the punches. So, for example, like in, in each of the matches that have build, been building up in these tournaments, and I can't confess to have watched um, all of them properly, so you know, a lot of this is coming from highlights and watching certain points, but um, like Alcaraz has certainly produced a different display in each of these matches as he's gone through Indian Wells. Um, talk about Gael Monfils, whoever was going to win that first set, was going to win the match uh, and it was a close a close thing um and i think uh, there was a lot of you know a, a lot of back and forth in terms of momentum which you know is often the case with a high level tennis match but yeah i was i was very very impressed by by the brain that was coming out of alcaraz and, and what he was choosing to do especially against a player like monfils who you know he has all the weapons and the showmanship and he'll get a crowd on his side very easily um but then, you know, going forwards, like he, he plays a different game against everyone. Um, and I was I probably would have been convinced to back the other player in each of the other matches um, uh, leading up to this point. Uh, because personally, obviously he's quite young. You don't expect him to go so far so quickly. But he is proving everyone that, you know, it, it, distinctly that it is possible. We could we could have another you know top player in our hands here. We could have another. Well, I don't think a big three or a big four is going to happen again. Uh, not not at least for an, another you know another couple of decades at the very least. Not from what I've seen, but we could have a big one, and mm. it could be him. If we just bring it back to them, this match against Nadal, um, in terms of like how this match is going to go, where like what areas. Can Alcaraz exploit Nadal's game or vice versa? How, how do you see that panning out and kind of what's going to give him the best chance of success against Nadal? Well, I think, I think you've got two, two major pro, you know, sort of uh, pro areas where they can both uh, attack each other. I think the one area that uh, Nadal's certainly going to have over Alcaraz is, is that experience. Uh, so, you know, that even if they do have that same level of thinking, um, power and that processing speed to adapt and change throughout the match. Um, I think that'll that'll largely cancel each other out, and what you'll be left with is Nadal's experience, like you know, showing through. Um, what I think Alcaraz has over Nadal is obviously movement. So you know, in terms of age, like I know it's not a Grand Slam match. We're not looking at longevity terribly here, but you know, there, there is a chance that Alcaraz could try and play a Murray-esque game. If he's clever enough, I would play a Murray-esque game and try and grind Nadal down, um, which is a tough ask. You know, Nadal is a king of grind himself, especially on the clay, and that's why he's been such a champion on it. But, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see uh, exactly how. But if I was going to pin anything, I, I think that Alcaraz's team and Alcaraz's brain will probably be moving towards, um, well, playing off of Nadal's movement, to be quite honest. That's interesting because I, I always look at it through my own bias, I think, because obviously the way I, w I like to play is aggressive and trying to dominate the baseline, get up on the baseline. Mm. So actually... Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't take an inch back from that baseline. No, it's probably, it's probably a bit overkill. But the way I was thinking about it is I think it's, 
essentially going <laughs> to, in the simplest terms possible, it's probably going to be a battle of the forehands and who can get on top of that early on in the point. Because obviously, it, I, as soon as Nadal gets uh, in front on his forehand and he starts dictating, you, it's, you're pretty much like the point's almost over, really, even if you've got as good yeah. a movement as Alcaraz. And I've seen Alcaraz's forehand like many times now, and that is a, <laughs> a serious weapon he's got there, along with a lot of other shots. But I think whoever can yeah, land that first kind of punch in each of those points and get, get uh, up on the baseline and kind of dictate with their forehand, I think that's going to be one of the most important things. Um, and yeah, obviously his movement is... He's got that over Nadal and he's got that over most players. I saw some absolutely ridiculous gets against Norrie. There was one particular one where he managed to like stretch for like a backhand and he kept the point alive. And then I think he he won it and it was just like a key point as well. And <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, this point's he thought this point was over like two or three times and he just continued to get it mm. back. Um I'm actually gonna I'm gonna go for the underdog in this one. I'm gonna I'm gonna say Alcaraz in two tight sets. But that's just because I want him to win. <laughs> what, what what are you going to go for? Oh, you know I'm a scientist. I like the story that's all about recovery, uh, and the story that's all about progression. So, like for me, it's got to be Nadal. I want to see players lasting longer and longer and longer because you know you get a lot of entertainment from that, um, and a lot of challenges. But at the same time. I mean, this is the same with Nadal, and it'll be the same with Alcaraz. There's just some sort of freaky genetics that enables them to be the players they are. It's the same with Djokovic. Like, how is he that agile? How is he that flexible? Like, it's it's freaky genetics, and it and it can only really be. I mean, yes, of course they work hard and they're very clever on a tennis court and they've played a lot of tennis. But you know, there is a point where you know someone like them they get to where they get because. You know, not many people like them have that freaky genetics to be able to uh, to to be able to work their body that way. Mm, yeah, to get to the top is obviously a combination of a lot of things. But yeah, genetics, yeah. like the right, growing up in the right environment, right people around you, um, mentality, you know, dedication, all those kind of things. All of them. Well, I to come don't know. I don't know what Carlos Alcaraz's family are like. Um, but I certainly know that Nadal uh, has, uh, you know, a spread of athletes in his family before him. So mm. it certainly makes sense. So you're going to go? Are you going to go for Nadal then in uh, two or three sets? What are we thinking? Mm. I think two easy sets to Nadal. Okay, nice. I think someone like I think someone like Alcaraz. He he may show you know a lack of emotion, but I think I think he'll be fluttering at playing this match. Yeah, that is the one <clears throat> the one thing I do worry a little bit about is kind of yeah the psychological edge that Nadal may have just because he's <laughs> like a legend of the game. You, you think it shouldn't really matter, but it does. There's there's that presence. Well, at the it other does. End of it really court, does. Especially for another Spanish player who I'm sure grew up idolizing this guy. Moving on to the latest development where we have a unified kind of message from the Grand Slams, which is a rarity. Um, they're all agreeing to at least trial this fifth set kind of championship style tiebreak where at six all it's first to ten points and obviously you need to be at least two points clear. Um, obviously <laughs> there are there have been notable matches in the recent past where fifth sets have gone on for ridiculous lengths of time. Even 
Um, thinking back to obviously the Federer Djokovic Wimbledon final, which was I think that was twelve all. Then they went to a tie break. So that was the rule at the time. Then we had yep. Anderson against was it Isner? I'm trying to remember who it was. Yep. It was two big Isner and Anderson. Yeah, that was. Wimbledon I was there the that semis. day. I was there that day. Oh really? Went late into the evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was watching on the hill because I had tickets for another court. But uh, yeah, they just they just kept going at each other, serve after serve. <laughs> It always seems but that, that's seems always going to happen it, when it? it's two servers coming up against each other. Yeah, it's these um, these particular matchups where yeah you've got guys with big serves where obviously especially on a quick court it's really difficult to break serve especially if they're both tall mm-hmm. that also exacerbates the kind of difficulty in returning well because obviously it's more dif- it's difficult to move as well as someone. And that's smaller. another conversation for another day is like the speed of courts and uh, and how those are changing. But yeah. Yeah, so yeah, those are notable ones. And then obviously the most kind of notable one was Wimbledon back in, I think it was 2010 or 11, where it was Isner again against Nicholas Mahu. And that went on for like three days or something ridiculous. Um, the longest match in history on one of the outside courts. Um, so yeah, we've obviously had like in recent times these... these um, matches that have gone on for ages and that kind of brings in the question of player welfare and the kind of fairness of the the tournament in general because some players are getting longer to recover than others um what's your what's your take on this move to sort of championship tiebreakers in the fifth set in terms of entertainment versus player welfare i feel like i've got a bit of a split personality on this point i must admit because again, I oh, I'm a big fan of the old ways, and I think you know the story of Isna Mahu, you know that that was such a great story, it was such a great, well I want to say day, but you know two or three days. Um, well, and more people you know, probably got to see you, the match as well if it was spread across those days. So you could argue. Well, that. yeah, you talk about participant welfare, though. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you're getting what you paid for, I suppose, as well. But no, I I think that. I think it very much is the case. I, I'd like to see it stay the way it was, um, simply because, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the way, um, you know, those battles can happen. Uh, and also the fact that, you know, you've got to try and think your way out of, you know, avoiding these sort of, you know, well, effectively stalemates, uh, where you just can't get over that, over that hump. You know, and it's it always going to be eventually. It's basically then a test of endurance, like who's going to drop first. But uh, or whose shoulder's going to fall off first from all the serves? But no, I think I think at the same time, I think it's better for the world of tennis. I think the I think not only is it better for tournaments themselves, who obviously then get less of a you know organisation headache from these matches going on for a long period of time and having to stay open for ages and all of that sort of thing. Um, I think it's also much less of a headache for the players as well. Some players might feel robbed, you know, at the end of a match. They'll feel, oh, we were literally right, you know, we were close. But, you know, it is the rule. So, you know, if you haven't broken by that point, it should almost be, it's pretty much a, 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 well, it's a coin toss at that point, isn't it? So you're, you're going with, a, you know, heads or tails, uh, who's going to get two points in a row, you know? So I, I, I do think it's better for the world of tennis. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I definitely think it's the right way forward. And actually, even though... You, it may take away from some entertainment in the fact that these longer matches are, you know, they provide like a, a unique kind of exciting narrative. I think ultimately yeah. 
when these matches do go on for a long period of time, it then it already starts to hinder the guy who wins in his next round because obviously he's not able this to recover as well. And then that means the next match is not going to be as competitive. Therefore, the entertainment for that match is probably not going to be as good as it could be. So I think overall, actually, it probably does benefit entertainment as well as player welfare. And obviously, you mentioned in terms of like tournament organization and all of that stuff, it's obviously like a no-brainer really in that respect. So I think I think this is obviously a trial period, but I would be surprised if it doesn't become a permanent thing across all all Grand Slams. Well, I see a lot of polls out there. A lot of people seem to be unhappy. It looks like a a third of people are happy with the new rule, and I mean, people it's don't like really change, French though, Open has now decided to change. But um, no, people don't like change. I think that people are quite happy to adjust. It's still a very long match, going to five sets, going mm. to six all, and then having to play a tiebreak. That is still long enough. Well, obviously, that tiebreak so, could still go on for a long period of time as well if it is exactly. a close match. So you still yeah. I mean, if it is that cutting, yeah, if it is that close, another potential exciting narrative: How long can a tiebreak go on for? There'll be more tie breaks to decide that. So, yeah, I think yeah. Overall, I think it's it's hugely beneficial, and yeah, in terms of player welfare and just the fairness of, um, in terms of recovery for players to have the best chance in the next match. I think yeah, it just it makes complete sense. So I am I am in favour of that one. Let's move on to Osaka. I think this was a few days ago now, where. She obviously ended up in tears whilst playing a match at Indian Wells. There had been a few instances in the match where she was getting heckled by fans. Obviously, she's also taken time out in the fairly in fairly recent past for mental health yeah. reasons. So it's <laughs> it's difficult to kind of understand exactly her state of mind and um, her kind of yeah how she's kind of interpreting things at the moment. But it this is a common thing that happens at tennis tournaments like I, I i know sydney australian open a lot especially when uh crowds are favoring one player we even saw it in fact in the kyrgios match against nadal literally like yesterday or the day before where um the crowd were heckling and he obviously replied with like a swear word and then he got penalized a point which gave nadal the set so this is a this is a fairly common this is not a new phenomena it's it's been going yeah. on for ages um what what do you what do you think about this? Is do we need how do we manage these kind of yeah these hecklers at, at tournaments? What kind of um, role do the umpires play in this? And what how, what do you make of Osaka's reaction and kind of um, how players kind of deal with these kind of things? What what's your what's your view on that? It's a tough road to walk when you talk about things like these. So. I think, uh, you know, obviously mental health itself is something that everyone experiences differently. Everyone has very different perceptions with. Everyone wrangles with their own demons in their own ways. And, you know, and how obvious that is to the outside world is very different. So, you know, from one player to the other, you know, you, you really don't know what's going on. What I what I think it always comes down to is, you know, if there are issues, then support needs to be created. You can't... So I saw that Nadal came out and basically said that players need to be tougher. Um that's that might be true, but that can only be gained through uh, necessary support for these players. So whether that comes from rule changes in terms of umpires controlling how those how those crowds are going to um, be able to heckle in the future, maybe a reduction wouldn't be the worst thing. You know, if it's the same culprit every time, it's not necessary. 
I, I will admit at this point, I, I have shouted, come on, Andy, uh, when watching Jamie and uh, Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez before. So, you know, uh, you know, being a heckler, it's it's an occasional an occasional entertainment factor as no, well. Merlin, you, know, you, you can't say that. Laugh. You can't say, come on, that's so rude. It's, you can't. It's yeah, exactly. But this is the point. So it's sort of where that line is. And you can't then condemn someone for, you know, a, a light tackle like that because, you know, it gets the crowd going, a bit of entertainment. So it's part of it. And I think what you need to do is then look at the individuals and support them in dealing with it. Um, but the question is, where does that come from? Well, a lot of the top players, if they're playing these tournaments all the time and they're getting the money, then maybe they need to seek the help themselves. Um, maybe they are. And it is a process. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily an outcome that's going to be uh, sorted for that individual, uh, you know, forevermore after they seek that help. But, yeah, I, th I think it's, it's very much the case of support. And whether that support comes from tournaments or the LTA or the ITF, it ju just needs to be there. And it needs to be known that it is there and it is accessible. Yeah. Um, I think, obviously the top players are more likely to be susceptible to this because this is when you get like the biggest cries come in so that it's therefore this more likely that people are going to shout out or people are going to be you know heavily involved emotionally in the match um and they'll be siding with one player or another so yeah what i suppose yeah the the tennis governing bodies that yeah should definitely at least signpost towards um, help that is available for sure they should yeah. more actively promote that especially in this age where everyone is talking about mental health which is obviously a good thing but talking about it is different from actually taking action and putting things Quite in place right. um, I think it's interesting that Nadal said you know players should be tougher because <clears throat> I don't want to be too cynical but it is a, a little bit easier for him to say that given that he has well, a huge amount yeah. of support in in pretty much all of his matches so I can't imagine he's had to deal with it many times um, when he talks about players being tougher like to an extent I agree with it I think you should have you should have strategies and this is something that can also be worked on with like a psychologist or you know like right, right. obviously the help yeah. that could be provided by tennis governing bodies um, so yeah there you, you have to just be aware that there is a chance of this happening especially as a, a top player and this is something you should kind of, it should be just part of your, your preparation or your training, like anything else yeah. is like, you know, your exercise in the gym. Obviously we talked about like your mindset and everything is really important. Um, so I think, yeah, players do need to take a bit of ownership in how they, they how they deal with it. And maybe for example, right. Kyrgios yeah. maybe hasn't done that or hasn't gone about it the right way or put enough time into it. May that not have in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's it I would say I would happen, say he's so. a somewhat more balanced character these days because I think he understands a lot more about himself now. Yeah. But then again, I I can't really comment on that because I don't know the fella. Yeah, but obviously he still does have some issues with it. So I don't know, maybe just yeah, he just needs to do a, a little bit more work on that front. Um it is yeah, it's tough for especially younger players coming through as well. Um I don't know, like if you take Alcaraz as an example, let's say in tomorrow's match, most people are probably going to be supporting Nadal. So if he gets on top in the match, you know, it might the crowd might get a little bit disgruntled with that. It might be a few verbals come his way. He's going to have to yeah. have some kind of strategies in place to be able to deal with that and stay in the zone and thinking about the decisions he's making on court. Um, so, yeah, I think players do need to take a little bit more ownership and how they deal with it and in terms of the crowds like 
it's difficult to control like what people are going to say. I think you know you just in terms of umpiring, you just need um, the umpires to be consistent and clear with you know what's acceptable and what's not, whilst trying to keep the flow of the match going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a tough job being an umpire, um, especially considering that you know, uh, and again maybe another conversation for another day but you know most of them aren't paid unless they're at the top level of tennis so you know in most other tournaments uh, especially things like queens for example you, you get expenses so um you know it's a it's a it's a tough gig so you've got to remember that a lot of the umpires that do it are doing it because they love tennis not because they want any sort of glory or anything like that yeah i think that that could be a, another topic for a future episode because i remember <clears throat> like uh, watching a video on tennis TV a couple of days ago when it was Shapovalov yeah. and um, his doubles partner. <laughs> this guy <clears throat> ran in to do, like, just to play a normal volley, and he tried to play it through his legs. And the way the ball bounced, it was fairly clear that he it hit it into the ground on his side. But the umpire yeah. hadn't seen it, and then Shapovalov, like, went up to the umpire, and he was like, how the hell could you not see that? If you can't see that, you shouldn't be umpiring. So this is a yeah another debate that we can talk about in the future is umpires' relationships with players as well as the crowd. It's it's quite yeah, yeah it's quite a, a difficult job. So I, I've got massive respect for the the guys and women that do umpire, especially in these top tournaments. It's time for a bit of tennis trivia once again. This time I'll be the one asking the questions for Merlin. Um, Obviously, so far we haven't been doing the greatest. We've scores of one and two out of five. So hopefully we're you're on leading the, by one point. The road of progression. Hopefully we're going to um, we're going to take some improvements this time. So question one, numero uno: Which player, by reaching the 1992 French Open final, holds the record for being the youngest player to reach the final of all men's Grand Slam singles finals. So I'm going to give you four options. And those are... Okay. Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, Pete Sampras, and Pat Rafter. So obviously this is 90s, and I know you... 90s, early 90s. Um, I can't remember in which order you said it, but I heard Jim Courier, and I feel like that's the right answer. And get a grip. No, it's right. You got it right. Oh, <laughs> oh phew. Well <laughs> I done. thought, oh, I'm yeah. off to a winning start again. I actually am. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's Jim Courier, the man who does all the post-match interviews after, like, Australian oh, Open and French Open. I actually quite enjoy the his, unmistakable his voice of Courier. He, he's actually he's a good laugh. I quite like him. So yeah, yeah, Jim Courier. So you've got the first one right. Well done. Here we go. Would you believe it? I know. I don't think any of either of us have got the first question right before. So that's a, that's a new landmark we've reached. Anyway, question two. In which city was Johanna or Joanna Conta born in May nineteen ninety one? So your options are Melbourne, pronounced correctly, not Melbourne, Auckland, <laughs> Sydney, or Perth. Apparently it's okay, a thing so... in Melbourne that you have to say Melbourne. You can't say Melbourne. I don't know. Melbourne. Yeah, that would really annoy them. If you ever go oh, there. It'd be really nice though if it was Melbourne because she was yep, Melbourne. Brilliant. Uh, uh... 
That would have been lovely. Oh, I don't think it is, though. Um, dun, dun. Fuck it. But, oh, no, I shouldn't say that. Sydney. I'm going to go with Sydney. And it's correct. Yeah. Oh, what do you know? Big Sydney. record. <laughs> <laughs> two out of two, 100%. Maybe this multiple choice thing's not a good idea because you're just going to get them all right. Yeah, maybe we're just going to win everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't have any interesting kind of information to add around that, but I will for the last one or two questions. So stay well, tuned whilst we're on Joanna Conter as well, where is she at the moment? Because I have I have not heard much where, of where her. Where is she, like, on Earth or in her career? No, 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 just, like, I, I don't know. I haven't kept up I haven't kept up with the, uh, the women's tour as much recently, to be quite honest. Um, but, um, no, yeah. I don't know either. <clears throat> seems to have... A bit of research for me to do. And speaking of women's tennis... Question three. Serena and Venus Williams have met in nine Grand Slam finals, but how many has Serena won? Your options are four, six, seven, or eight. Oh, four, six, seven, and eight. Yeah, those are numbers. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Oh, God. No clues this week. No clues. Four, six, seven, or eight. This is head-to-heads with Venus and Serena. Mm-hmm. I thought they played more. So you want to be thinking about who had the upper hand in, in a lot of their finals. Obviously, you may, you probably wouldn't have seen like all of the finals, but you may have an this idea. This is it. We're, we're going back over a long period of time. I, I don't... I don't remember, but I feel like they would have played each other more because obviously Venus hung around for a very long time on the tour. Um, let's go with four. Get a grip. Oh, the answer is seven. Seven. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, a very a very dominant record over her her older sister Serena had. I I think it was yeah. Obviously Venus did stick around for quite a while. Probably it's a bit. I feel like the early days I was going to go with Venus, like because well, obviously she was a big winner in the early days. I'm not exactly sure the order in which it happened, but I'm pretty sure Venus won. You know, those two that she did win were in the earlier matchups. Obviously, when Serena was younger in her career, and Venus was kind of yeah at her peak or close to her peak. But yes, yeah, seven out of nine, pretty dominant record there. Fair enough. That right, is big. Okay. Over to the men, and specifically British men. How Ooh. many British men have reached Grand Slam finals in the last 70 years? And can you name them? So this is not a multiple choice. This is just an open uh, question. How many points are on, on for this? Um, let's give one for how many, and then I'll give a bonus point if you can name all of those players. I nearly gave away the answer, and that would have been too good. Oh. Just chew on. So it's just being in the finals. Yeah, the Grand Slam. So, so really, really, my only question is: Has Tim Henman gotten to a Grand Slam final? <laughs> well, um, were there any others? Maybe yes, maybe no. Were there any others? Christ! I don't really want to give any singles, clues. right? Yeah, yeah, men singles. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, because otherwise, otherwise the Murray family are definitely dominating. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know. I am going to say, in which case, I'm going to say two. And I'm going to say Andy Murray is one of them, clearly. 
and I'm going to say Tim Henman, because I feel like he's lost in a final. That would make sense. Get a grip. Oh. So it was three. Obviously, Andy Murray was one of them. He's actually got to 11 Grand Slam finals. Greg Rosetsky was one of the other ones. Oh, he, yes, of yeah. course. He got to the US Open <sighs> final in 1997. So he was sort of around at the same time as Henman. Henman didn't actually get to a, a final because if you remember, I think it was 1999 or something at Wimbledon, he got to the semi-final and he was up against Goran. He was actually up in the match. And then yeah. there was like a rain delay. I think they had to either come back later that's that right. same day that's or the right. next that's day. Right. That's yeah, right. and, he, and he lost that. So that was the closest he got to a final. And then the third one was actually John Lloyd. John he got, Lloyd. Yeah, commentator now quite often for Wimbledon. <clears throat> he got to the... 1977 Australian Open final where he lost to a guy called Vitas Gerolitis. I don't know if you've ever heard of that name. I honestly haven't, mm. no. It's quite but a nice that's name. before my time, so way before my time. <laughs> um, very nice of you there to acknowledge that uh, you, you seem to think I'm old. But yes, carry on. It's, it's just Next weird. question. So, so far you've got two out of four. Let's see if you can record the best score that you've had so far. So question five. And the question is, what is the origin of the terms continental, eastern and western grips? Oh, interesting. The origins of the grip names. I, I like that you've included a grip question again. Very original. I um, definitely didn't copy it from last week at all. Continental. See, I feel like I remember that this is... Something's telling me it's wrong. But I'm going to go with this answer because it was in the same section of that book that I got my question from. I'm pretty sure it's just sort of the dominance of those grips in the various places that they um, were, were particularly sort of like taught or where those courts were, for example. So like obviously we have different grips for different reasons. And one of the reasons that the sort of the Western grip was invented is because the balls, you know, bounced higher on a concrete court, for example. So if you have a Western grip, you can make a higher contact point, uh, but keeping your elbow dropped lower. And this is actually what they teach a lot of uh, younger juniors, um, specifically on a British tour, uh, is that they start off with a really, really extreme Western grip because then they can handle each other's topspin, basically. So I'm going to go with I'm going to go with that because I think Continental was sort of it was always the European way because that was sort of the standard grip for a very long time. Very glad we're not playing like that anymore because it's very boring because the balls don't have any spin. Um, you know, I love my spin. And I'm pretty sure, you know, that sort of Western and semi-Western, that was all to do with sort of America. That is correct. You know, I thought nice. you were going to ruin my little chance to give a history lesson like you did last week there. So I'm going to just expand on it a little bit. Yeah, 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 so, go for it, go for it. Yeah, you, you, you're spot on in terms of um, it's based on the location. So it is, like, it's pretty obvious, like, in the name of yeah, those yeah. grips. So, obviously, Continental was sort of the earliest um, grip that dominated. So this was based in Europe or originated in Europe. Someone will, someone will probably say, oh, no, it wasn't. It was founded in this little part of the world at this year. But we think it was originated in, in Europe where they had a lot of lower bouncing grass courts. So obviously this grip That's right, enabled yeah. players, often with their wooden rackets, to deal with the, the low skiddy bounces and obviously also 
you know, you, you, the, the game was based on like attacking and volleying a lot more than it is now. And this was kind of pioneered by guys like Rod Laver, Margaret yeah. Court, even John McEnroe. And this was sort of around the 60s, 70s time. Really? You cannot be serious. <laughs> Sorry. That's the guy. Um, and actually, at that time, three of the four majors were on grass. So a lot of these, these majors did have lower skiddy kind of court surfaces. Um, obviously, this grip is still used, continental grip still used for things like serves, you know, overheads, volleys, that sort of thing. And I, mm. I like the term Swiss Army knife of grips because it does have like multiple uses. So I quite like it that. It does. So that's it a does. continental grip. The Eastern Grip, as you were alluding to, it originates from Eastern USA, so the lawn courts that they used. Bjorn Borg was sort of one of the first players to kind of start this revolution, if you can call it that, in the 70s and 80s. So he started, so obviously this means moving your hand round the racket to sort of the third bevel, sort of um, on the octagonal shaped grip that we now know. Um, he started, I was going to say, a lot of... A lot of people, you can describe a grip quite nicely if you use the V of your thumb and finger uh, and where that locates on the racket. So rather than chopper grip is what we also call continental mm -hmm. um, because it looks like you're going to chop something up with the frame of the racket. And obviously Eastern is going around to, um, well, the opposite of chopper effectively. Yeah. So basically the, the hand is starting to move around the grip as we go here. So yeah, um, yeah Eastern grip, this is... Yeah, pioneered by Bjorn Borg, and this he started playing with more topspin than those previous players who were using continental grips. The game started to become more baseline oriented, um, and then guys like Sampras and women like Chris Ever and Steffi Graf, they started using this grip a lot more often. And then obviously uh, Federer came on the scene towards the late sort of 90s, and he... He sort of took part of the Eastern grip and so he moved, started to move his hand a little bit further around. So he was sort of like a, a hybrid between that Eastern grip and then what started to move into the semi-Western or Western grip as it now is, which originated in Western USA where they have, you know, a lot higher bouncing kind of concrete courts like you mentioned. Um, and tennis is obviously moving more and more towards a baseline game with a lot more topspin. Um, and guys, you see guys in terms of the Western grip, you see guys like Katchen or Hatchinoff and Carl Edmund and Jack Sock with these extreme Western grips. So your hand is like underneath the the, the racket in a sense. And it's, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. look particularly nice on the elbow, but does give you incredible amounts of topspin. And that's it's terrible game. for your elbow unless you unless you really work on that strength and conditioning for your arms and your elbows it's really going to cause some damage. So there is a little bit of a contentious issue there. Yeah, I think personally my grip is sort of more towards like Eastern to semi-Western. So I'm like yeah. <laughs> almost like old school in a way, um, fairly like flat the way I hit my strokes. I don't know, what kind of grip do you use for your grip? Oh, I'm semi-Western. Yeah, semi-Western, yeah. pretty, pretty standard stuff these days. But I get most of my top spin from sort of leg drive more than anything, to be fair. Yeah. And obviously, yeah, rotation. So yeah, like most players in the modern game, still use, still use semi-Western grips because you still get, like, you can still generate lots of topspin, and also you, you don't just completely destroy your elbow in the process. So that's kind of yeah. the yeah, especially in this baseline dominated era, that is the that is the go-to grip. So yeah, those are those are kind of the main grips that are used and where it originates from. So that's, that's a little history lesson for today. All right. I think that, that wraps up everything for this week. Thank you for listening, um, and we will see you in the next one, hopefully. 
And if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe. Not that anyone is at the moment, but if you are, that would be nice. See you next time.